welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anthony Sanders, Director of the Institute for Justice's Center for Judicial Engagement. We will discuss his work on Baby Ninth Amendments, including his articles, Baby Ninth Amendments and Unenumerated Individual Rights in State Constitutions Before the Civil War, which is published in the Mercer Law Review, and Baby Ninth Amendments Since 1860, the Unenumerated Rights Americans Repeatedly Want and Judges Often Don't, which is published in the Rutgers Law Review. So welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks uh, so much, Brian, and it's it's great to be on here. And I, I want to start out and say, I used to think there was one uh, saint of legal scholarship, and that was Larry Solom. Um, and now I, I know you and the rest of the team, Ipsa Dixit, are, the, are another uh, saint for legal scholars. So thank you so much for your, your service to this podcast, and it's great to be on. Oh, that's so kind. I'm a huge admirer of Larry's uh, as well. And um, I, I think I'm still uh, awaiting canonization at very best, but I really appreciate <laughs> you saying that. Um, well, so Anthony, I really uh, enjoyed reading both these articles, which touched on a subject matter that, to be perfectly honest, I had really never thought of uh, before and didn't know a whole lot about or really anything about before before reading your articles. And I, I suspect a lot of listeners are in the same boat. So, so by way of kind of situating people in the conversation that you're starting in these in these pieces and in this work more generally, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the federal constitution first and the ninth and 10th amendments of the federal constitution before kind of transitioning into talking about uh, sort of parallel provisions in, in state constitutions. Yeah, sure. So let, let's start there. Uh, so um, many are familiar with our bill of rights in the uh, federal constitution. I hope all, all the listeners are. Uh, the two that you don't hear as much about at the end are the Ninth Amendment uh, and the Tenth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment uh, seems to imply, at least on first read, that there are rights beyond just those listed in the Bill of Rights that uh, apply to the federal uh, government that protect the people. The Tenth Amendment uh, talks about powers being withheld by the states that are, are not the federal government's. Now, there's been a lot of scholarship on the Ninth Amendment in recent years from various schools of thought. Um, from On the one side, uh, there's people like Randy Barnett who say that the Ninth Amendment means what it says. And yes, it does protect unenumerated rights uh, of various kinds. And on the other side, there are a number of scholars with different takes on the uh, Ninth Amendment that it doesn't mean exactly what it says. Uh, one is uh, Kurt Lash, who thinks that it's it's more of a federalism uh, protection. There's various other uh, schools of thought. Um, uh, former Judge Michael McConnell has a, 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 a more idiosyncratic take on it. Um, and so uh, I thought that was all very interesting, uh, working at the Institute for Justice, where we litigate a lot of unenumerated rights issues. You know, We're interested in the Ninth Amendment. Uh, but I noticed, uh, I think as early as when I was in law school uh, over 15 years ago now, that state constitutions had stuff that looked like the Ninth Amendment. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder what what those might mean. 
Uh, and I started looking in different state constitutions and realized that not only were was this just in a couple of places, uh, but if you add them all up, 33 states, so two thirds of all the states have uh, a version of the Ninth Amendment, very, very similar, if not identical language in their own constitutions. Uh, and so I thought, well, what does that mean? Um, should they be interpreted the same as the Ninth Amendment? Are they different? Is it a different way to think about it? And along the way, I even noticed that there's a few states where there's something that, that looks kind of like the Tenth Amendment. And I thought, well, what does that mean? So when I began this project, I was looking at it from a, uh, from a public interest lawyer perspective, which is what I until recently mostly did at the Institute for Justice, where, um, you know, we, we file cases to protect people's individual liberties and rely on various parts of federal and, and state constitutions. But as I got into this project, uh, I realized that there's another layer to that. And that's just kind of what do we make of these various uh, provisions in state constitutions? So before I get more into that, maybe the other thing I could do is just lay out you know, what a state constitution is, uh, which uh, a lot of people aren't, aren't too familiar with. So we have the federal constitution, which is the, you know, the outline of powers of the federal government and then protections from those powers of uh, individuals in the Bill of Rights and elsewhere in the constitution. But then every state has its own constitution. Um, some are older than others. Some are very differently written than others, but all of them have a bill of rights or a declaration of rights. And often the rights in those state constitutions are fairly similar to what we see in the federal constitution, although they're, they're often lengthier. And those are protections that apply against state and local governments. Um, so a lot of them have this thing called a, what, what I have been calling a baby ninth amendment, which is a version of the U.S. Constitution's Ninth Amendment. And um, by the way, the, the term Baby Ninth Amendment, I fully acknowledge I stole it uh, from uh, John Yu, uh, professor of, uh, at, of course, at UC Berkeley, who is better known for other things. But uh, his, his first article out of law school was actually uh, about the Ninth Amendment. And he coined this term, I think is perfect, uh, called calling these things Baby Ninth Amendments. So that's the, the background of uh, that they're in a lot of these constitutions. They're, they come directly from the, the Ninth Amendment itself. There's similar versions to the Tenth Amendment. They're a little more different than the actual Tenth Amendment. Uh, and, uh, and then the question really is, what do they mean? And then also, what does the whole fact that they exist mean for unenumerated rights more generally? Mm. Well, so thinking structurally, I mean, I, I wonder if you could sort of remind listeners what the actual language of the Ninth Amendment says and sort of how that language relates to the baby Ninth Amendment's uh, language in state constitutions. But but also, I think maybe maybe if you could like kind of tee up why this is such or the, maybe 
some of the reasons why this is such a puzzling kind of problem because like like what exactly is the relationship between the federal constitution as compared to state constitutions i mean after all the 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 federal constitution seems like it sort of lists the limited powers of the federal government but it seems like state constitutions maybe are doing something slightly different or could be understood maybe as doing something potentially slightly different given the relationship between sort of state sovereignty and the state police power and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that uh, powers issue. Well, first, first of all, on the relationship between the two kinds of constitutions, we should maybe put that out of the way because although it's kind of a, a basic uh, principle, it's often misunderstood. So, uh, you know, the federal constitution is the supreme law of the land. Anything in a state constitution cannot trump what's in the federal constitution or indeed what's you know, properly passed by, by Congress. Um, so if something is in a state constitution that conflicts with the U.S. constitution, that, that's not the law. But states have a lot of leeway in what they put in their own constitutions. And, and uh, states, uh, unlike the federal constitution, which at least in theory, of course, has enumerated powers. So the only powers that the federal government has are those which are either are explicitly or implicitly in the federal constitution. The states have just, you know, the reserve powers of government. Now, it's a really interesting question what those powers are and where they come from. Uh, I mean, any government a sovereign government of a country, you could argue, just has unlimited power. Uh, and then it's, a, it's up to whatever that government is to uh, to limit that power in, in, in how it uh, constitutionally, um, you might have a natural rights argument that it, it, it uh, violates some principles. But as far as what the actual powers of the government is, you know, it's up to it's up to it to define those. Um, you know, that might be one view. The view at the time of the, the founding of the country uh, of the, the U.S. Constitution and the drawing up of various uh, uh, state constitutions, both before 1787 and after 1787, was this idea of popular sovereignty. Um, and that's basically still the same view that, in, that is behind state constitutions and the federal constitution today. And that's that the people collectively in their individual capacities coming together in a a very Lockean type of way, have this power. And um, they they are going to put that power in the state government, say. Um, And that that power is just going to be however they define it. And so most states are going to have fairly plenary power, the basic powers of government, with police power uh, being, being one part of that. Um, but then they're going to protect against that power in, in certain ways. Um, this is this view um, comes out in these things I call baby tenth amendments. So before we get to the language of the ninth amendment, let's actually talk just very briefly about these baby tenth amendments because they, while baby ninth amendments get no respect, um, baby tenth amendments really get no respect, and I, and I wish. <laughs> I wish that there were some scholars that did um, some more work on them. So, of course, the 10th the, the Amendment says that all, uh, not reading verbatim, but the powers that are not 
uh, given to the United States by the Constitution are reserved to the, the states or the people, respectively. Maybe Tenth Amendments uh, are uh, a little bit different because at least the earliest ones, the earliest one was from the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1790. And it, it recognizes that states have fairly plenary powers, at least when the people the, in their sovereign capacity set up a government, they can make that a pretty, um, uh, you know, plenary power, very, very strong powers that the government has um, that aren't enumerated powers. But that's dangerous. Uh, and it's recognized uh, that that's uh, that that's dangerous. And so there's certain ways that they protect uh, against that. Now, what the what the uh, Pennsylvania um, Constitution did in 1790, it said, and 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 this is the the language in a in a draft uh, before it was uh, before it was adopted, was to guard against transgressions of the high powers which have we which we have delegated. So they recognize we're giving you a lot of power, state government, out of our Lockean state nature. You're getting a lot of power. But then they continue, we declare that everything in this article, that is the, the Declaration of Rights, is exempted, accepted out of the general powers of government and shall forever remain inviolate. So that's a recognition that state governments have, um, have fairly plenary powers, or at least the people can decide to, to set them up that way, and they usually do, but that we need to guard against that and we need this Bill of Rights. That actually goes to some stuff you know, that Hamilton said. Uh, in the Federalists about, you know, a Bill of Rights isn't very necessary for the federal government because it has um, enumerated powers. But in a state government, you know, it might be a, a really good idea. Let, let's so just going back to your question, the Ninth Amendment then says, this is the actual language of the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So the question is, again, uh, the debate with people like Randy Barnett and also that it's not just libertarians like Randy Barnett, people like Dan uh, Farber, uh, for example, is, uh, uh, is not a libertarian, uh, will say that that means that there's these these implied liberties in the Constitution that protects them. Well, others will disagree with that. And often it's a federalism argument, that that's that's federalist language and it has to do with the enumerated powers and it's it's a it's kind of a canon construction of federalism. Okay, fine. That that I don't take a position in my articles about who's who's in the right in that debate. But then uh although the, the, the Ninth Amendment first came up with that language, then uh, in 1819, it took a few years, but in 1819, in both the first constitution of the state of Alabama and the first constitution of the state of Maine, almost identical language was placed in those constitutions, um, one of which in Alabama was paired with one of these baby Tenth Amendments, uh, was, was, was put in those constitutions. Okay, those those provisions are not to do with federalism. This is a state constitution. State constitutions don't care about federalism. So what do they mean? Um, and what I do in, in these articles is, is spend a lot of time trying to figure out well, what they might mean. And, and um, uh, as I was telling uh, Brian just before recording, we're I'm now working on a, a manuscript that hopefully will 
we published uh, as a book uh, uh, at some point um, that goes a little bit deeper into what the actual meaning of these provisions is. And my conclusion is I, I can't see how these can mean anything except that they protect individual rights um, beyond just those enumerated in the Constitution. And one reason that you do that is because of these broad police powers that states have and the Madisonian uh, uh, danger that you're not going to be able to list all the rights that are important. And so you have this et cetera clause at the end, right? And you say, well, and then we don't know them all. There's other rights out there. And, uh, and they use the language of the, of the Ninth Amendment to do that. Mm. Well, so in your papers, you recognize uh, a few alternative arguments that have been advanced for ways that we might understand the meaning and function of these baby Ninth Amendments. I, I wonder if you could talk briefly about some of those alternative interpretations and why you think that ultimately they're not compelling and that we should think about baby Ninth Amendments as essentially being about uh, unenumerated rights. Sure. So let's, uh, we could, we could briefly talk about those different schools of thought and some, some of them are, are more, uh, important than, uh, than others. Uh, but there's basically what I've identified as six different ways to look at the ninth amendment from an originalist perspective, I should add, um, you know, there are, living constitutionalist ways or, or whatever your school is to to look at some uh, models of the Ninth Amendment, but uh, we basically don't have the space to to go into all of those if you're if you're looking at from a from an originalist perspective. So uh, but but I think they fairly capture the different ways that people would think about the Ninth Amendment anyway. So one is um, is that is is that the nine? This was this was a scholar uh, thirty forty years ago put this put out there that it, that this is about states uh, laws, so common laws, state statutes. The Ninth Amendment is about the federal government not um, overriding those. It's it's kind of a quirky take on the Ninth Amendment. Um, it it hasn't got a lot of play over the years, but you know whether it's right or not. It clearly, if, if you have one of these provisions, the state constitution, it's not, you're not worried about overriding state laws because you are the state in writing your own constitution. You, you, you can sort all that out in the constitution. So it's not that model. Um, there's also uh, a, a argument that there's some, um, that there's a couple different flavors of that it has to do with enumerated powers. Um, so either you're not implying additional implied powers that Congress has, or that you're you're saying um, that the the enumerated powers mean that there aren't more rights than just are in the Bill of Rights. Um, it can't be either of those again because we're not talking about enumerated powers. Uh, there's also a uh, an argument about collective rights that and and Akhil Amar talks about this that. Uh, the rights of the states to operate as um, in their sovereign capacities were protected by the Ninth Amendment. Again, you're, you have a state constitution. You can do that in your own constitution when you come together as a people to write your own fundamental law for your state. 
Um, and then there's the federalism model that, that we, we've talked about. Um, and so finally, really, by almost by default, uh, and it, but, it, but it concurs with the actual language of the of baby Ninth Amendments, uh, is that it protects individual rights. Now, what those individual rights are, um, how you protect them through the courts differently or similarly to enumerated liberties, those are all other questions. But most fundamentally, uh, my my take is I I don't see any other way that the, the to read these other than what they look like, which is to protect enumerated rights and that or I'm sorry unenumerated rights and that that actually brings up some other scholarship that has been done in recent years uh, by uh, Professor Calabresi and a, a student of his uh, Sophia Vicheri, who did a study of these things called. Uh, that they call uh, Lockean uh, natural rights guarantees that are in a lot of uh, constitutions. Uh, and, and many people would be familiar with them. They're language that sounds a lot like the opening to the Declaration of Independence or, or, or near the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. It's actually written originally by George Mason in the Virginia Declaration of Rights and talks about natural rights to um, to life, liberty, um, and, and property and the defense of property. Um, and they, although they name a few specific rights, they're also very kind of open-ended, like they you know, a lot of them in, in other liberties, basically. Um, and so a, a lot of states have both of those in their state constitutions. Um, again, there's 33 states with these Baby Ninth Amendments, and they've been placed in constitutions starting in 1819. And the most recent uh, new one was in 1970 in, in Illinois. So um, many states have adopted these things at many times. These, these Lockean um, clauses are in 31 states, I believe, and, and you know, some have both. So if you add them all up, uh, I think it's over 40 states have some version of e either one of these things that seem to on the face of it, protect unenumerated liberties. So the, 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 the bigger question that I came to see while I was doing this scholarship beyond just, you know, how can we use these provisions perhaps to protect unenumerated liberties, just seeing them all over the place, people adopting them at constitutional conventions over and over again, all throughout American history, uh, raised the question of, well, geez, people seem very comfortable with constitutional language that protects unenumerated rights. And that really flies against everything you learn in law school or in legal scholarship about unenumerated rights, right? We hear about Lochnerism, about using a due process clause to protect these, uh, these rights that are made up by, by judges. I mean, here you have left-wing examples of that, right-wing examples of, of that, um, and that way we should only you know, protect uh, liberties that are spelled out in the Constitution. We need to be careful about judges making up liberties. But when people actually write constitutions in this country, they are fine with language that protects unenumerated liberties. And so there is this huge disconnect between the constitutional writers and then the judges who then enforce this language. Because one thing I, I haven't talked about yet, uh, and, and, uh, and I'll let you ask a question in a moment, but one thing I haven't talked about yet is that these provisions 
um, baby ninth amendments are very underutilized in the case law. There's some cases where judges do, you know, what I'm talking about, like this implies a protection of ex liberty. Um, but even in states that have them and where courts do that, they usually use like a due process clause and not the baby ninth amendment, which would seem to me to be a natural way to do it. So it's like they are doing what conservatives accuse people of doing with due pro- the, the federal courts are doing with the due process clause, whereas there's actual language that would be much more suited to that beside them. Um, and so some of it's a real mystery is, you know, why haven't these provisions been used? And some of it is just, I think, a disconnect between people writing constitutions saying, hey, we want these liberties in here. And then judges saying, oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, it's really fascinating. So I, mean, I, I can't help but wonder, I mean, for better or for worse, the federal Ninth Amendment, uh, irrespective of what scholars have had to say about it, has has not been, let's say, highly used by courts in yes, even less uh, <laughs> in kind of finding and recognizing uh, unenumerated rights, uh, and certainly as something that kind of provides an independently sort of assertable, litigable basis for asserting unenumerated rights. Are there reasons for thinking that the Baby Ninth Amendments in con- in state constitutions should be understood more capaciously? I mean, do we have evidence about what the drafters and adopters of those Baby Ninth Amendments intended them to accomplish that might potentially encourage state courts to think about the scope of those constitutional provisions more capaciously? Yeah. So, I mean, we can put, you know, the debate on the, over the Ninth Amendment again to one side, but there there is some evidence in uh, some constitutional conventions. And I don't know if any listeners are have read much of state constitutional conventions, but they can make for very fascinating reading. They can also make for frustrating reading because, you know, they didn't write everything down. Uh, Some barely even have a journal of the proceedings uh, and some, uh, you know, don't have the committee reports, for example, and the more modern ones do. So often you don't get the full story of what was said about various provisions, but there are a, a, a number of them over the years that have said a bit about baby ninth amendments and generally, they they say, look, this is uh, amendment to say that uh, we don't, we won't we don't want to forget about other rights, and so we want to make sure that that it's in there. They're not very extensive generally, uh, but there's very little in there that would make you think, oh, actually, you know, this is about federalism, or or actually, this is just hortatory language, and unlike the rest of the the state bill of rights, we should we should be ignoring it. It seems like the drafters were you know, comfortable with that. One thing uh, I, I go into in one of my articles, one, one really fascinating case I have is a case out of Iowa in the late 1860s that involved a, a baby, ninth, the Iowa's baby ninth amendment. And um, the, the court enforced it in a, in a certain way and actually did find there, it was a property right that was unenumerated. And there's a concurrence where one justice says, this is, you know, this is very important, and our constitution is is uh, supportive of this these unenumerated liberties, and had some some uh, strong language in that regard. And then there's a dissent, and the judge in the dissent essentially says, "I don't read this Baby Ninth Amendment to do much of anything, um, but even if it did, it's really dangerous." 
Uh, and we we should not they should not be giving us judges this kind of power. So uh, it's an example there of one judge, you know, reading the Constitution for what it is. And one and another judge saying, you know, I do not like that the drafters of this Constitution gave me this power and I'm not going to use it. And there I see a little bit of an echo of some things that Justice Scalia said um, over his career, where, you know, he said we should enforce written uh, constitution strongly, you know, in cases such as, uh, for example, on Heller, um, uh, where, where it's, it was actually enumerated liberty. But unenumerated liberties, I just don't see the Constitution as saying that. But he also at times did say a hint that even if the U.S. Constitution were read to protect unenumerated liberties, that judges shouldn't interpret it that way. Uh, He had a statement like that about the Ninth Amendment, uh, and he had a statement about that about the Privileges or or Immunities Clause. Uh, In fact, I was actually once at a, a talk he gave where he said, you know, he doesn't like reinterpreting the privileges or immunities clause. Uh, and, and he didn't say it, but it seemed like regardless of what it actually meant at the time from an originalist perspective, because, and this is a quote, it's another a ship for the rats to cling to. And so I think there's out there for judges, uh, when, they, when they see this language, they just think, I don't want to do this. And the point that I'm uh, making in in the scholarship is that, okay, that's not your choice, judge. Your choice is not to make things up, uh, which which judges are often criticized for doing. But it's also not to ignore um, what the will of the people is. And in our system of government, it's that if you have a constitutional convention and people come together and they write a document, it becomes, and it's, it's by whatever rule of recognition you have, it's, it's adopted as the supreme law of your state, you're supposed to enforce that. Um, and so we have a problem, you know, of uh, there can be a problem of judges making things up that's in the Constitution. There can be a problem of judges not engaging with the Constitution uh, because they don't like what uh, the people have done. And, and both are a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, so Anthony, in, in in closing, I mean, one of the things I found really fascinating about the story you tell in the paper is that that it seems like the information you've uncovered and recount in the papers about the sort of history of these baby Ninth Amendments, in a way has a little something for both originalists and kind of more kind of historicized political living constitution type ways of thinking about constitutional rights as well, in the sense that, you know, these are provisions that have been written into state constitutions over a very long period of time. And it seems like there's sort of a suggestion that consistently over the course of American history, they've been intended to accomplish very similar kinds of things in terms of, you know, protecting unenumerated rights against government action. And that's what they were written into the Constitution in order to accomplish. And and so I can't help but wonder whether these baby Ninth Amendments and sort of the historical evidence about what they meant originally, but also what they've meant much more recently and sort of how people have thought about their purpose and why it would be a good idea to include them, ought to inform the way that judges think about 
the Ninth Amendment and the federal constitution and unenumerated rights more generally. Yeah, well, that's an excellent point. And that's that's something that I invite you know others who are are more focused on the federal constitution or the, or the Ninth Amendment to to take that 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 investigation, either either the work I've done or, or, or Professor Calabrese's done uh, on uh, on lock these locking and natural rights guarantees um, to take that recognition that people over and over again, Americans over and over again, when they come together and write constitutions, they're comfortable with unenumerated rights. Well, then apply that to where Americans have come together to write parts of the federal constitution, whether it's, you know, the, the house and Senate in 1789 of the bill of rights or uh, those same bodies in 1866 with the 14th amendment, um, which was, you know, which is by the way, just a few years on either side of various state constitutions adopting the, these, these kinds of provisions themselves um, that, that Americans are comfortable with, writing unenumerated rights language. So why would it be that weird for Americans in 1789 or 1866 to write unenumerated rights language? Um, And a lot of a lot of pushback on, you know, that reading of the Ninth Amendment or that reading of the, say, the privileges or or immunities clause in the 14th Amendment is that, you know, we should really only pull the trigger on these things protecting unenumerated rights if it's really clear. And, you know, the length, Ninth Amendment is kind of quirky and it's written kind of weird. We weren't exactly sure what Madison was doing. There was a lot going on at the time. So, so we shouldn't we shouldn't make that jump. Um, but I think our work shows that uh, it's actually a very normal jump to make. <laughs> I think George Mason made it with his, his declaration in 1776 uh, that then inspired uh, language in the Declaration of Independence. Um, I think many, many uh, times it's happened since then. It's actually 66 times uh, Americans have come together in a constitutional convention uh, or similar body to to write a BNP Ninth Amendment. So this is not abnormal. And if it's not abnormal there, why is it abnormal that it happened with the Ninth Amendment? Um, you know, that doesn't uh, tell the whole story on how to interpret the Ninth Amendment, but I would hope it would it would inform uh, people when they're trying to do so. Awesome. Well, Anthony, so much. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed having you on and talking about these two great papers. And there are, of course, links in the liner notes. So listeners who want to read a way more fulsome history of Baby Ninth Amendments and the discussion around them, uh, I commend the two papers to them. And thank you so much, Brian. This has been so much fun. This is the World Bill of Rights, the New Covenant. Let each of us share all the world, the kingdom of God, and call one place of our choosing our own and be free to come and go in the world and stay at any dwelling place accommodating travelers. Let each of us give of ourselves to the extent of our abilities to the one world company, and in return all things shall be added unto us. Let each of us be judged only by our conscience in God, 
and let no people judge their fellow beings, but rather take judgment of their own thought and action. Let no person or group hold any authority over another except that people be willingly led by wisdom and true personality. Let the government be of the people, where the people are self-governed, by the people, where the people enjoy perfect freedom, and for the people, where the people give themselves abundant living. Let the government seat be only the storehouse and inventory of the people's products. Let all things be done unto edification, for God is not the author of confusion.